0: Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. I'm sure all the children, all the young people, know what FOMO is. F-O-M-O, fear of missing out. I think it's always been there. We're always wondering, well, what are they doing? And am I missing out on something? But with social media, it's so much worse because not only do you know that other things are happening, but you know exactly what's happening and you know who's there, and you know what they're doing, and you know exactly what you're missing out on. And related to, uh, to, to fear of missing out is wanting to fit in, and that always has been part of human existence. We are social creatures. We're made for interaction. We're made for community in some shape or form, whether our temperament is that of an introvert or an extrovert. We're made for community. God has said it's not good for man to be alone, but, but this very aspect of our makeup leaves us often feeling the pressure of exclusion or fear of exclusion and wanting to fit in. And that has become all the more relevant in the last couple of decades because Christianity has moved from being at the center of the West's values to being Well, not simply, as one writer puts it, the good guys, but being the bad guys. Being the bad guys. Where our values are not simply seen as wrong, but they're seen as dangerous. They're seen as damaging and they're seen as destructive. They're seen as destructive and damaging to the very values that are held dear today. And Christians, and especially our young people, can feel under pressure to change to soften the edges of the Bible's teaching, to quieten down a bit. Adults feel it too, so that we can be part of society, so that we can be at the heart of it. We we can feel pushed to the fringes and marginalized. And some Christians react with anger, and some Christians react with despair, but neither are right. And although our reasons for feeling pushed to the fringes are very different from the reasons of the readers of this letter, this closing chapter shows the perpetual relevance of God's Word. What we're told here and and what underlies these commands is as relevant in century 21 as they were in century 1. We're not going to look at each of the commands microscopically. What I want to do is is see the, the big themes that cause the writer to issue these commands. And there are at least four themes. First of all, live attractive lives. Live attractive lives. And this evening, we're not going to go into detail. I want us to give us the roadmap for this chapter so you can go home and say, well, how do I do this? How do I put this into practice? So, live attractive lives. That's in verses 1 to 3. You see, persecuted people or oppressed people can become defensive and suspicious. Pressure has a way of either pushing people together or causing fractures in a church. And it looks like there have been fractures in this church here. And we need to be careful for ourselves that that's not the case. Pressure can make a group of people sort of draw in on themselves and and close out the outside. And we don't want that either. The writer calls us to live attractive lives and he he points us in two directions in these opening verses. He says that we're to live attractive lives in the church. We're to live attractive lives in the church. Beautiful, rich, grace-filled lives you see, verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers. Keep on loving each other as brothers. The word used is Philadelphia. It means love of brothers, love like brothers, brotherly love. And the the writer has spoken about this previously in chapter 10, where they were to encourage one another. Uh, They were to spur one another on in chapter 12, strengthening one another keeping on, not giving up, and moving on together. And they're to continue demonstrating the care for each other that he had spoken of in chapter 10, verse 33, where they stood side by side by those who were persecuted and spoken ill of. In verse 3 here, he says, they're to continue to remember those in prison as if you were in prison with them, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. There was to be a... A warmth of care for each other. And the early church did this. One writer uh, says sometimes Christians were condemned to the mines, which was almost like being sent to Siberia. Christians sought out their fellow Christians, even in the wild, and they would have a church there. So those isolated Christians could be part of God's community. Imagine the cost involved in that, upping. Your roots and moving so that you could be with these people who were on their own. At other times, whenever sometimes Christians were, were taken captive and carried off by, by kidnappers, in one instance, the, uh, the Christians at Carthage raised a massive ransom to set free Christians who had been taken captive. There were other times when Christians sold themselves into slavery so they had money to ransom their friends. Do you see? See the level of brotherly love that there was. Now we mightn't have people in prison, but that we could visit like that, or people who've been kidnapped that we can ransom. But do you see the level of costly care? We're to live attractive lives so that people looking in can see. In a fractured, broken world, they can see, wow, those people—they really care for each other. They would do anything. For each other. They love each other. Isn't that what Jesus said? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. There's something deeply attractive that only the gospel can really explain. Live attractive lives in the church. That's something that we've been seeking to do, and I believe we do it, but let's keep on doing it, especially in a world of increasing division fracturing, and also loneliness and isolation. Love. Ah, love the, the church of, of Christ. And then we're to live attractive lives in the world. I told you the Greek word that's used in verse 1, Philadelphia. The reason I told you that was so you can see what the author does. Because in verse 2, he says, Don't forget philozenia. It's the same sort of word. Philo, zenia means love of foreigners, love for strangers. It's a, a play on words. It is love your brothers, those inside, love those outside. It's not simply, as some versions have, uh, do not forget to show hospitality. Well, that could just mean to your fellow Christians, have your brothers and sisters in the church round for meals regularly. That would be nice and that's part of living attractively in the church. But this goes wider. This is those that we don't know, those who are strangers to us, those who aren't Christians. And we're to have open homes, our an openness about our time. There's an attractiveness about having open homes in a world of increasing closedness. A willingness to have people into our homes is rare. It's important, it allows them to see family life. It allows them to see the Christian life. It allows them to have a bit of respite, maybe from loneliness or silence. Respite from hassle. Respite from trials. Our homes could be mini havens for people. Or it may be that it's not practical or workable to have people into our homes, but we could go and meet up with them and have a meal with them, or have a coffee with them. We're to have a a concern, a love for the stranger. We're to live lives that are such that those who look at God's people, they might say, well, you know what? I disagree with just about everything you say, but I really like who you are. Live attractive lives, verses 1 to 3. Second big theme is stay on track. Stay on track, verses 4 to 10. If we're not going to get sucked into the storyline that Christianity is on its last legs uh, and then start to sort of give up and putting as much effort in as, as, as we should do and to run with perseverance the race marked out for us, we need to stay on track so that we don't give up. And the author underlines that here in a number of ways, and we could, we could group them into two areas. Stay on track morally. That's the first one. Stay on track morally. The second one will be stay on track spiritually. First of all, stay on track morally. Verses 4, 5, and 6. He picks out the ever-present twin God's of sex and money, twin lures, twin temptations. And Christians are to be morally different. We're to stand out, we're to stay on track. Verse 4, marriage should be honored by all. and The marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Words that or used here. The adulterer somebody who's unfaithful within marriage. And the word used for sexual immorality is, is the Greek word. Again, you'll, you'll know it. You'll recognize pornos. That's where our word pornography comes from. It's all sexual immorality outside of marriage. There's a stern warning given. God will judge. That God is a consuming fire. That God into whose hands it is a fearful thing to fall. The ancient world was notoriously immoral. Unlike our world, they didn't even bother with labels. They just, yeah, whatever you want, whenever you want, whoever you want, off you go. It was simply an appetite. One writer says about the, the, the church, he says, in the early days, the Christians presented such a purity to the world that not even their critics and their enemies could find a fault in it. Wow, and you see that becomes attractive to people when they see that there's a the ugliness and the 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 using of people and the filth that goes on, and they see others who don't treat people as pieces of meat, who don't treat them as something for their own uh, desires and pleasures, but who treat people with meaning and value and dignity and respect and purity. The watching world, those who are, who are fed up with the, the state of things start to see there's something about this. These Christians have something. What a word for today's world. And all aspects of the brokenness of marriage should sadden us. The lightness with which people talk about sex. Uh, just last night we were watching a really harmless quiz show and the uh, the contestants were asked to, uh, were asked quiz questions, but they had to get the answers out of the letters of their name. Uh, and so one of the contestants was asked, um, Madonna's hit song, Like Ah, uh, and they all knew what the answer was. But he, And he realized that out of the letters of his name, the word virgin could be spelt. And he said, oh, I'm so ashamed. Thanks, mum. You know, what? What, what? What is wrong with that word? It's been turned into a thing of shame and yet should be a badge of honour and purity and chastity and richness. We live in a world that devalues marriage. I've just finished listening to a biography of Steve McQueen. He was married three times. He was not faithful to his wives in the slightest. We live in a world where the internet is awash with pornography. What a word to us today where marriage is devalued and redefined. Marriage is to be honourable, to be held in honour. And the way we talk, the way we act, the way we speak, the things we look at, the, all of it, we are to stay on track morally. We to stay on track morally. And that other great magnet for our hearts is mentioned here, money. Or to keep ourselves free from the love of money. It may not be one set of urges that derail us. It may be another set of urges. Money and the things that money brings. Just a little more, a little more. It mightn't be accessories and goods. It might be security that a little bit more money brings. And God isn't our security anymore, but our bank balances. And Paul warns in First Timothy 6, he says, the love of money is the root of of all kinds, of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Stay on track. Stay on track morally in a world of get and grab, of upgrade and outdo, of getting our identity from our goods or our success. We're to be content. Do you see what he says? Be content with what you have. And what is it you have? I will never leave you or forsake you. God says, wow, you've got God. You've got God. Uh, and okay, well, maybe it's not just contentment on its own, but it's a discontentment that comes with, with wanting a bit more. And God says, well, if there's stuff you need, I will be your helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do? All this world offers is shadow glories, dust glories and contentment is part of staying on track morally as well. For discontentment leads to jealousy, leads to envy, it leads to taking matters into our own hands and we seek contentment outside of God. And then we dishonor God and we drag our profession as a Christian through the dirt. We have a God who says, I will be your supply. And contentment is a beautiful thing. In a world that says enough is never enough, the Christian who is content with where they are in life and what God will provide for them stands in great contrast. It's part of living an attractive life. It's part of staying on track. So be careful of these twin dangers. Stay on track morally. But stay on track too spiritually. Verses 7 to 10. We'll not take time to delve into these. But you can see how he's calling them not to depart from the path that their leaders had set them the example for. Those that had gone before them. Verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Ah, but, the readers might say, the world is a different place from then. Ah, but, the author says, Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All that he's told us about Jesus, his supremacy, his sacrifice, his salvation, his supplication, his his praying, his sustaining, he's enough. Don't Go chasing strange teaching, he says, in verse 9. What you've got is enough. Uh, Some of these Jewish Christians were perhaps going to go back to the feasts and festivals of Judaism. And the writer says, Let your hearts be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods. You've something richer than any priest ever had. You feed on Christ and all that He brings. Stay on track religiously. Sometimes I see Christians looking for some other thing to add to their faith, some mystical practice that they add. Oh, we do this. Or we've started observing these Jewish rituals. We've started having a Passover meal every year. We've started keeping the Jewish Sabbath holy the Saturday, from sundown on a Friday evening to sundown on a Saturday. And they think, we're better because of all these things. No. They're going off track. They're putting their their confidence in the things that they're doing, not in the supreme Savior that the book of Hebrews has pointed us over and over again. Have confidence in God's grace as He feeds it to us through the preaching of His Word, through prayer, through the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, these are channels of God's grace to us. Or to stay on track spiritually by listening to the leaders that God has given to us. Verses 17 and 18. Obey your leaders for they are one, they're men who have to give an account. Here's how to stay on track. Listen and trust the elders that God has given. They are called, the writer says, to watch over you. The word is used of a soldier standing on guard duty. And they're told that they will have to give an account. And those of us who are elders need to remember this. We are under shepherds. We are not the great shepherd who's mentioned here. We are under shepherds. We are under shepherds. And we will have to give an account that we didn't bully the flock, that we didn't impose our own rules on the flock, that we didn't treat them gently where there should have been discipline because we were showing favoritism to some. We are to stay on track religiously, spiritually. Stay on track. That's how we're to live in this world. Live attractive lives. Stay on track. And then thirdly, And this is perhaps the main point. Be comfortable outside the camp. Be comfortable outside the camp. Verses 11 to 14. These are incredible verses. They're visually powerful. And they resonate deeply with the history of God's people. And they, although they're ancient in their reference... They are incredibly relevant to century 21. We go back to the time when the Israelites left Egypt and they are camped at Sinai. And at the heart of the camp is the tabernacle with the Holy of Holies. And then radiating out from the Holy of Holies, there are, as it were, decreasing circles of holiness. There's the holy place. And then there's the courtyard. And then there's the the encampment of the Levites around the tabernacle, and then there's the encampment of the people of Israel, and then there's the outside the camp where the unclean and the leper and the sick were to go, where the diseased went and the ritually unclean. And on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the sacrifice went into the most holy place, but then taken outside the camp was the carcass of that sacrifice, and it was burned outside the camp in the place of rejection, in the place of shame and guilt and being unclean. And the writer references that here. He says uh, in verse 11, But the high priest carried the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And the application he makes from that is incredible. The idea of outside the camp had these connotations of shame and disgrace. And that's why he says Jesus was crucified outside the city. Outside the city of God. In a place of shame and disgrace. And far away from the holy of holies in the temple. And what Application does he draw from that? He says, Let us then go to him outside the camp. You see, these people were feeling outsiders. These people were feeling isolation. These people were feeling shame and disgrace. They were feeling like minorities and outcasts. And the writer says to them, You're Jesus. Our Jesus. Our Jesus, who is superior to all the prophets and all the angels, who is the superior priest and the superior sacrifice, he was outside the camp, outside the city. And he went there to make you holy through his blood. He went to the place of shame and the place of disgrace so that we could eventually come to the place of honor, the place of glory. So what should we do? Should we be ashamed of him? Should we not want to be outsiders? Should we not want to be excluded? Should we not want to be ostracized? No, let's go to him outside the camp. Let's bear the disgrace that he bore. You see, the great problem that they were facing was this ostracism. They were wanting to avoid disgrace. And what does the writer say? He says embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace being in the minority. Embrace being an outsider. You know the embrace being outside the camp. You know, Christianity has strangely been at the heart of Western society for five hundred years. That's been nice, but it hasn't really been normal. And now that's changing. And some Christians are getting really shrill and whiny about it. But this is the norm. We're not meant to be at the heart of things. We're meant to be outside the camp. We're meant to be on the periphery. We're meant to be ostracized. We're meant to be in the minority. That's the point. And you see, instead of railing against it, if we embrace the margins... As one writer calls it, a man wrote a book there recently called Being the Bad Guys. Uh, Really, really good. Stephen McAlpine. And he talks about embracing the margins. Being on the margin. And if we do that, it frees us from despair and anger. Yes, it's sad that Christianity or the West is losing its Christian values. But it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Yes, it's sad that governments are rejecting Christian heritage and that society will suffer for it. It's sad, but it's not the end of the world. And yes, we should urge governments to implement godly laws, but when they don't, we don't despair. We don't despair that Christianity's values and Christians being pushed to the margins. We go to him who's outside the camp because we thrive on the margins. This frees us from feeling that we need to fight every single cultural battle that comes along. And some Christians need to realize this so they stop whining about every loss in society. It frees us, too, from the pressure to be accommodating. You know, whenever you're at the heart of things, you have a great pressure to file the sharp edges off Christianity. But we're at a point now where everything about Christianity is a sharp edge. The whole thing is an edge. Even to believe in a God, that's an edge. People they don't want to know about that. And we aren't seen as a quaint relic from the past, but as like a dangerous cancer. And it frees us from the... if we're, We say, well, that's okay. That's what we are. And we will embrace being on the edge and being a minority and being ridiculed and shunned. We'll embrace it. And yes, it's sad that people think that Christians are bigoted and intolerant. But we can't be depending on the opinion of others. Instead, we go to him who is outside the camp. See, this is how we're going to live and survive and thrive. And you see, as we're doing that, we're not trying to be obnoxious and odd and isolationist and hurtful to people. We're living attractive lives. We're staying on track. We're doing the things that we've thought about already. And you know, on the outskirts makes it easier for hurting people to find us. And believe me, they will come looking once the emptiness of all the promises of self-expression and a self-identity And self-determination, once all the emptiness of all those promises comes crashing down around them, people will look for help and meaning and hope and repair. And we need to hold our nerve. The margin is where we are best because it's where our Savior was and it's where we are too and I want to speak particularly and specifically to the young people, I know what it's like to want to fit in. I know what it's like to want to be liked and to be popular. I know what it's like to, to sit on a fence and to want to have a foot in both camps. But our Savior deserves more than that. So don't sit on the fence and don't try to fit in. Be willing to stand out. And here's the thing. You see, Jesus stood out and he sang his own tune and he lived according to his father's plan. And here's the thing. It made some people angry, but others loved him and hurting people came to him. And you see, if we hold our nerve and embrace that we are going to be outside the camp, we'll find that people come to us. People come seeking help. People come seeking friendship. As Stephen McAlpine says, be, if we're going to be the bad guys, that's how the world is going to see us, be the best bad guys we can be. Live holy, happy, loving, and joyous lives that compel as many people as they repel. You hear that? Live holy, happy, loving, joyous lives that compel as many people as they repel. In a world of cancel culture, be forgiving. In a world of isolating people who have a different opinion, be properly inclusive. In a world of never forgetting, be gracious. In a world of of where we are meant to hate those who have a different viewpoint. Love your enemies and do good to those who harm you. In a world of self-esteem and putting down people so that you feel good about yourself, esteem others, even and especially those you disagree with. Esteem them as better than you. Hold your nerve and have confidence in living outside the camp. Be the best bad guys. Stephen McAlpine says, It's first of all confusing. How can they be so loving when they reject the idea that love is love? Then it's intriguing. I don't agree with how intolerant they're they're supposed to be, but they welcomed me in. And next, after it's confusing and intriguing, next it's attractive. This looks and feels and sounds better than anything I'm currently doing. And then finally, it's compelling. I think this might just be where true life is found. That's what we want. People to be intrigued. First of all, confused, intrigued, attracted and compelled. But that only happens if we are comfortable on the margins, staying on track and living attractive lives. And did you notice the writer doesn't say, Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Let us go outside the city gate. He says, the high priest went outside the camp. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Let us go to him outside the camp. Then he says something. He says, for we have an enduring city. He goes back to the camp imagery, the imagery of them in tents, because he wants us to realize that we are the ones who have the city. We're the ones that, who wants to live in a camp when you are destined for a city. That's why we'll live on the outskirts of this temporary world, this temporary encampment of this world, because we have a city that we are en route to. Who wants to be at the centre of a refugee camp? That's what this world is. And all of this is to strengthen these. Believers, to be content to be on the margins. To be content being thought odd. To be content being ostracized. And to cope with that, knowing that God will use it for good. To be content outside the camp. And then fourthly, if all that sounds like a tall order, the fourth point by our writer is masterful. The fourth thing to note here is God will equip you for this. God will equip you for this. How are they going to persevere? How are they going to strengthen feeble arms and weak knees? How are they going to stay on track? How are they going to encourage one another? How are they going to have confidence to live on the margins? How are they going to spur one another on towards love and good deeds? Look at verse 20. Now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. How will it happen? God will equip them. I'm going to leave you to think on those wonderful titles of God, the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ in those verses and to think how they encourage you to live. But note three things about this equipping. It's powerful equipping. He is the God who brought Jesus back from the dead and He is going to equip you. He's going to equip you to run the race with perseverance. He is able to equip you to live on the margins. He is able to keep you going While you live by faith. Do you need peace? For a troubled conscience. He is able to give it because he is the God of peace. Do you need equipped? Because life feels hard and difficult and broken. Well the word equip is a lovely word. You find it used in Mark 1. And going on a little farther. He saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother. And they were in their boat mending the nets. It's the same word. Mending, equipping, same word. That's the idea. It's that sort of equipping that's a mending, a repairing, a restoring equipping. That's what God does. It's a powerful equipping that comes to us. And even with our flaws, He says, I can equip you to keep going. Oh I know who you I know your weaknesses, I know your struggles, I know how you don't want to live in the margins, I know all about you. But I can equip you. And it's a comprehensive equipping. Equip you with everything good for doing his will. Everything. Everything. What a word. This word that's used for equipping is also used of a disciple that's been fully Trained, fully trained, fully equipped, fully made ready to serve his teacher and his master. Do you need patience? Do you need strength? Do you need endurance? Do you need joy? Do you need hope? Do you need determination to overcome temptation? Do you need strength for parenting? Do you need the ability to persevere in prayer? He will equip you with everything you need For doing his will. Do you see what it says? Look at the words, the page. He will equip you with everything you need for doing his will. Has he commanded you to do something? You think, oh, I couldn't do it. He will equip you with everything you need for doing his will. And then, more than that, it's not simply powerful and comprehensive, it's an indwelling equipping. It's an indwelling equipping. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. May he work in us. Not only does he equip us with all that we need, but he then takes hold of those very graces that he's given us and he says, I'm going to work with these in you what is pleasing to me. What a wonderful picture. We're struggling along in the Christian life. Not sure we can make it. And God says, I'm going to provide all that you need. That's great. But it's not enough. You know, sometimes you can be so tired that even if somebody were to come along and give you all the resources that you needed, you actually oh, I'm too tired to even use them. Well, God's ahead of us there. He says, oh, I know that that's what it's like at times. So I will take the things I give you that I equip you with, and I will work with them in you to do what is pleasing to me. Like a carpenter, he fits out an apprentice's workshop. It's got all that the apprentice needs to churn out work that is pleasing to the master craftsman. But who comes and works with him? Who stands beside him at the lathe and says, here's the tools I gave you. I'll help you use them. Who is it Helps him with the chisels and the augers and the scribes to, to, to put those intricate details, a scribing tool, on, on some beautiful carving. It's a master craftsman. And he turns out work that is pleasing to him. Now do you think you could keep going? No matter what the world throws at you. No matter what tiredness comes to you. No matter what temptation comes your way. The God who calls you, To keep going is the God who equips you to keep going and who comes and enables you to keep going and to be productive in your going. He works in us what is pleasing to Him. He works in us what is pleasing to Him. And I think there's a great help in us. We might look at our lives and think that what we have achieved as we've sought to live for God, doesn't amount to very much. You read the biography of some incredible Christian and they seem to have done so much and they've written so many books and they've launched so many ministries and you think, I've done nothing. Or they've been so faithful in their witness and they've spoken to hundreds and thousands. And I think, well, if I had more time and I had more energy and I had more ability. And I... But God works in us what is pleasing to Him. He works in your life what He wants to work in your life, what is pleasing to Him. So, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. That's not to to let us off and say, oh, well, you know, I'm not going to try. very. I'm not going to live. No, the author has called us to run with perseverance. We're to keep going by faith for God is going to work in us. So, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the one who is the Radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. The one who upholds the universe with the word of His power. The one who is superior to angels. Let us fix our eyes on Him who was made perfect through suffering. who's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Let us fix our eyes on Him who is able to keep us from being tempted. Let us fix our eyes on Him who is a high priest able to sympathize with our weakness and able to save completely those who come to him. Let us fix our eyes on him who always lives to intercede for us, who has offered that one sacrifice for our sins, who has brought us to a city that cannot be shaken. Let us fix our eyes on him and let us live attractive lives in this world. Staying on track, let us go to him outside the camp, knowing that God will equip and enable us in every way to do what pleases him. Why would we ever give up on such a Savior? Amen. Let's, if we're able, stand as we come to God in prayer. Lord God, you know our hearts and you know that none of us like being odd. You know we don't want to stand out. You know that we want to be at the heart of life, the heart of people's appreciation, the heart of uh, people's approval. You know this is how our hearts are wired. This is what we long for and yet help us to have the confidence that by following Jesus and living your way, and staying on track and being outside the circle of what is accepted, that we will be effective for you, and we will receive your appreciation and your approval, as well as the appreciation and approval of people in this world who come to us and say, why is it you've got hope? Why is it you have peace? Why is it you have confidence? Why is it you are not burdened by guilt? Why is it that you are not despairing? Why is it that you are not on the verge of suicide? Why is it that you've got hope in this brokenness? Why is it that you're gracious and forgiving? Lord, help us. Help us to have confidence to live your way, to persevere in going your way knowing that you will equip us for that very task. And as we do that, you will work in us what is pleasing to you. Father, give us that peace of heart and mind. Father, we pray that you would equip our children, especially, especially, Lord God, to stand up and to stand out according to their own characters, to to live winsome, gracious courageous lives for the sake of their Savior. Keep them on track, Lord God, and let them have that confidence that in five years, ten years, twenty years, thirty years, people will be coming to them and saying, tell me about your Savior. Tell me about where you have found hope and meaning and purpose in life. Lord God, help us to live these godly beautiful, attractive lives. Keep us going. Keep us persevering. We pray. We ask it for Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory. Amen.